Welcome to TanaStudy.com. This is Naima Novetsky. This class will be our sixth and final class on Parashat Bahar as we finish learning Parakhafei, Chapter 25. After discussing the laws of Shemitah, Yovel, and land redemption, our chapter moves into the laws of slavery, speaking about both an Evid Ivri, a Hebrew or Israelite slave, and an Evid Knani, a Canaanite slave. Our verses are not the only ones in which slavery is discussed. Both Parashat Mishpatim and Parashat Re'eh also elaborate on these laws, each from a different angle. Not surprisingly, our chapter's unique focus is, of course, the context of Yovel. We'll look at the verses one by one and then open up a larger discussion of why the Torah allows slavery at all. The unit opens with the laws of an Israelite slave. If your brother has grown poor among you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and as a temporary resident, he shall be with you. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and he shall return to his own family and to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. And the unit ends in verse 43. You shall not rule over him with harshness, but you shall fear your God. Our verses actually say very little about slavery, emphasizing just two points. First, that we must treat our slaves not as slaves, but as hired hands. And second, that they must be freed in the Jubilee year. The reason given? Because B'nai Israel are Hashem's slaves whom he freed from Egypt. The language used to prohibit harsh labor is Lotir Devo V'farach. This noun, Farach, is the same word used in Sefer Shmot to describe the back-breaking labor that the Egyptians subjected the Israelites to. Hashem subtly reminds the people that they know what harsh labor is like, and therefore they should make sure never to subject another to it. Chazal teach that we must treat our slaves as we treat ourselves. Drawing on a phrase within the discussion of the laws of slavery in Sefer Dvarim, which says, Kitov lo imach, because it is good for him with you, they explain that the verse means that your, sh- that your slave should be imach, with you, with you in food, so that you do not eat good quality bread and he poor, with you in drink, that you do not drink old wine and he new, and with you in comfort, that you not sleep in comfort and he on straw. If one had read only our verses, one might think that every slave is enslaved until the Jubilee year, for our verses mention nothing about the six-year limit that is discussed in Sefer Shemot and Sefer Dvarim. In those Sefarim, though, we learn that only a slave who asks to stay on with their master may continue being a slave after the initial six years. Our chapter comes to teach that even then, he must nonetheless be freed in Yovel. The next three verses turn to a Canaanite slave with quite different laws. Verse 44. As for your male and your female slaves, whom you may have, of the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. 
Moreover, of the children of the aliens who live among you, of them you may buy. Umi mishpachtam asher imachem asher holidu ba'artachem, v'hayulachem la'achuzah. And of their families who are with you, which they've conceived in your lands, and they will be your property. V'hitnachaltem otam levnechem acharechem l'reshet achuzat olam. V'hem ta'avodu, uv'achichem b'nei Israel, ish ba'achiv, v'utirdevo v'farach. You may make them an inheritance for your children after you to hold for a possession. Of them may you take your slaves forever, but over your brothers, the children of Israel, you should not rule one over another with harshness. There are several differences worthy of note when comparing the two sets of laws. First, by the Evid Ivri, the verse states, If your brother is impoverished and is sold to you. By the Canaanite, we are instead told, From them you should buy a slave or maidservant. According to Halacha, there is, there is really no such thing as buying an Israelite slave. He might be sold to you, but you do not actively look to buy one. There are only two ways that a person can become a slave at all. If a person has stolen an item from another and does not have the means to pay it back, he can be sold against his will to compensate for the theft. Alternatively, he can freely sell himself into slavery if he is so poor that he has no other means of subsisting. According to Rambam, even such a situation is very limited. A person may only sell himself if he is reduced to such poverty that he has nothing left, not even a garment. In contrast, our verse teaches that with regards to Canaanite slaves, one is, active, one is allowed to actively buy them. Moreover, this slave can be passed down as property from one generation to the next and need not be set free during the Jubilee year. In addition, there is no explicit prohibition against working such slaves hard or treating them harshly. In fact, the verses conclude by contrasting the two types of slaves, reminding us once again, and your brothers you should not rule with a hard hand, suggesting that you may in fact do so to your Canaanite slave. And in fact, according to Halakha, one is allowed to whip or hit a Canaanite slave. Nonetheless, it is important to note that if you do so intentionally, and in so doing make him lose one of his 24 limbs, even just a tooth, he must be freed. Our chapter ends with one last set of laws dealing with slaves. The obligation to redeem an Israelite who is forced to sell himself to a non-Jew. Verse 47. If an alien or temporary resident with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him has grown poor and sells himself to the stranger or foreigner living among you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. O dodo, o vendodo yigalenu, o misher b'saromi mishpachto yigalenu, o hisiga yado v'nigal. Or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is a close relative of his family may redeem him, or if he has grown rich, he may redeem himself. The verses teach that if a person is forced to sell themselves to a non-Jew, there is an obligation to redeem him. This obligation falls on the closer relatives first, his brothers if they can, if not, the obligation falls on his uncles and then his cousins. And if he himself finds the money or is able to take out a loan, he should redeem himself. There's a real fear and concern that if the slave is living in an idolater's house, he might come to transgress Torah's laws, eating not kosher, profaning Shabbat, 
or even worse, coming to worship idolatry. As such, if his close relatives have the means but not the desire to redeem him, Beitin, the court, can force them to do so against their will. The next few verses elaborate on the specifics of the laws of redemption. Verse 50. He shall reckon with him who bought him from the year that he sold himself to the year of the Jubilee, and the price of the sale shall be according to the number of years. According to the time of a hired servant shall he be with him. The assumption here is that the non-Jew to whom the Jew is sold is living in Israel under Israelite law. So this sale too, even though it is to a non-Jew, is only to last until the Jubilee year. As such, when buying the slave back, one calculates how many years worth of work has already been given and how many years are left until the Jubilee year. If there are yet many years, According to them, he shall give back the price of his redemption out of the money that he was bought for. If there remain but a few years to the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him. According to his years of service, he shall give back the price of his redemption. As a servant hired year by year shall he be with him. He shall not rule with harshness over him in your sight. The Israelite slave is like a hired hand, working year by year for his master. And as such, one can easily calculate how much it should cost to redeem him, for one can simply take the yearly wages left until Yovel. If he isn't redeemed by these means, then he shall be released in the year of the Jubilee, he and his children with him. The next verse concludes, for Bnei Israel are my servants whom I took out of Egypt. I am Hashem, their God, your God. Though the chapter ends here, the parsha includes also the first two verses of chapter 26, which at first glance seem totally unrelated. You shall make for yourselves no idols, neither shall you raise up an engraved image or a pillar. Neither shall you place any figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am Hashem your God. You shall keep my Sabbath and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am Hashem. Many have asked, what is the connection between these laws which speak of idolatry and observance of Shabbat, and the previous ones regarding slave redemption. Some have answered that these verses serve as a contrast to the preceding ones. Hashem has just said that the nation are his servants, so he now adds, and therefore, not only should we not be enslaved to other humans, but we must also make sure not to serve other gods. In addition, since we just spoke about the potential for a Jewish person to be enslaved to a non-Jew, and the fear of accompanying assimilation, Hashem warns, make sure you still keep my Shabbat and recognize me as creator. It is clear from our chapter that Hashem would prefer that Israelites never be enslaved to others. We are his slaves and belong to him and him alone, not to other humans. As such, Torah generally limits slavery to six years and ensures that even in the exceptional cases where someone is enslaved for longer, that they are freed on Yovel. Moreover, 
Torah warns much about not mistreating Hebrew slaves and viewing them as paid workers rather than slaves. At the same time, it's not so clear if the Torah is necessarily against the institution of slavery as a whole. For as we saw, it has a very different conception of Canaanite slaves and appears to have no problem with that institution. Whenever I read our chapter, I'm reminded of a speech made by Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave who became a national leader in the abolitionist movement in the U.S. in the 1800s. In arguing against the institution of slavery, he writes, Would you have me argue that man is entitled to liberty? That he is the rightful owner of his own body? You have already declared it. Must I argue the wrongfulness of slavery? There is not a man beneath the canopy of heaven who does not know that slavery is wrong for him. What am I to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty, to work them without wages, to beat them with sticks, to flay their flesh with the lash, to sell them at auction, to sunder their families? Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I will not. I have better employment for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. Douglas very eloquently argues that it should be obvious to all that slavery is wrong, that slavery is wrong. For everyone is aware that all humans should be entitled to their liberty, that everyone should receive wages for their work, that no one should be beaten, sold, and separated from family. He then continues, what then remains to be argued? Is it that slavery is not divine? That God did not establish it? That our doctors of divinity are mistaken? There's blasphemy in the thought. That which is inhuman cannot be divine. Douglas cries out that anyone who wants to call on the Bible to prove that slavery should be sanctioned is blasphemous, for after all, that which is inhuman cannot be divine. We hear his words and we think, but slavery is not banned by the Torah. Yes, the Torah limits slavery. It warns against mistreatment of slaves. It is quite humane relative to other law codes. Yet at the same time, it does not prohibit slavery. And we wonder, in Douglas's words, how could that which is inhuman be divine? Why is slavery permitted by the Torah? The question relates mostly to Canaanite slaves, for as we saw, Hebrew slavery does not really exist. Only those who freely sell themselves or those who stole and can't pay back what they stole might be enslaved. And these slaves are only temporarily enslaved and to be treated as hired hands. But Canaanite slavery does exist, and we wonder, why is it allowed? Our question touches on a more fundamental issue, one that we've raised several times in our study of Vayikra. Does the Torah represent an ideal, or might some of its laws be merely concessions to human nature? If the Torah allows slavery, does that mean that it thinks that there is nothing wrong with the institution? and that an ideal society could actually include slave owners and slaves? Or does its permission simply suggest that this was just a necessary evil, and that the alternative of banning slavery would have somehow been worse? We'll survey several approaches to our questions, but before we begin, let me give credit where credit is due. Almost all of what I'm about to share is based on an article by Gamliel Shlomo called Orthodox Approaches to Biblical Slavery. It's a great starting point for anyone interested in the topic and points to many sources, many of which we'll talk about together. Perhaps not surprisingly, we'll see that it's mostly the more co modern commentators who talk about the topic, 
Apparently, medievals were not particularly bothered by the issue. So let's start with the Nitziv, who uniquely suggests that it is not only permitted to own Canaanite slaves, but that we are actually commanded to do so. On the words Mehem Tiknu, from them you shall buy, he writes, Mitzvah leknot, it is a mitzvah to buy a Canaanite slave, for in so doing, one can remove them from idolatry. According to him, one may enslave only an idolater, not someone who has already abandoned other gods. For the Nitziv, the benefits of having someone abandon belief in false gods justifies removing his freedom. A person who does not believe in God and as such has no moral system has no purpose in life. Better for him to lose his liberty and gain a meaningful life than to be free but without God. This is a somewhat extreme position and probably not easily heard by many modern readers who might question, who are we to impose our beliefs on others? How can I decide that removing someone's freedom is justified just because I think that my religion is better than theirs? But then it seems suggests that maybe, really, a loss of liberty is a small price to pay if it leads to monotheistic belief and practices, which, after all, might then grant eternal life. Rav Hirsch agrees with the Nitziv that the law is justified and not merely a concession to human nature, but for very different reasons. He suggests that a close look at our verses teaches that one may not buy any Canaanite and enslave them, but only someone who is already a slave. The verse states, The slave or maidservant which will be yours from among the nations. One is buying not a free person who is being turned into a slave, but someone who had already been a slave. In so doing, Rav Hirsch asserts, you will be improving his lot tremendously, for Jewish law provided protection for the slaves, while foreign laws did not. Rav Uziel, the first chief rabbi of Israel, elaborates on this idea. He writes, But were those mockers to think carefully, they would understand that this acquisition was not permitted other than regarding those who were already sold to their brothers under the same conditions. And even so, it was not permitted to exploit their bodies. Rather, even if one should damage a major human limb, the slaves go free, even for a tooth or an eye. From here you see that the acquisition of a Canaanite slave that the Torah permits is for the good of the slave himself, to save him from his Canaanite brothers so that he should not be enslaved cruelly and physically exploited to the point of death. One might of course question, but if the point is simply to improve the lot of foreign slaves, why don't we redeem and free them as we do Israelite slaves? Rav Kook thus takes his approach a step further, suggesting, that actually slavery in its different forms will always be a part of the natural world, for there are always economic gaps between rich and poor, leaving the poor at the mercy of the rich. Slavery itself, then, is not necessarily bad. Like all things, it's an institution which, when abused, can be horrid, but when used responsibly, can actually be quite beneficial to the poor. He writes, You should know that slavery as with all the moral upstanding ways of God in which the righteous walk and the evil stumble, never in itself caused any fault or error. Slavery is a natural law among the human race. Indeed, there is no difference between legal slavery and natural slavery. In fact, legal slavery is within the jurisdiction of Torah 
and is legislated in order to to control certain flaws. And this because God anticipated the reality of natural slavery. Let me explain. The reality of life is that there is rich and poor, weak and strong. A person who has great wealth hires poor people legally in order to do his work. These employers, these employees are in fact natural slaves due to their socioeconomic standing. For example, coal miners. These people go to work in the mines of their own free will, but they are in effect slaves to their employers. And maybe if they were actually owned by their employer, they would be better off. The rich, with their stone hearts, scoff at all morals and ethics. They don't care if the mines lack air and light, even if this shortens the life expectancy of their workers, whose numbers run into the tens of thousands, many of whom become critically ill. They certainly won't engage in any extra expense to improve working conditions in the mines. And if a mine shaft collapses, burying workers alive, they don't care. Tomorrow, they'll find new workers to employ. If these people were owned by the master, by legal slavery, he would have a financial interest to look after their lives and well-being because they are his own assets. Rav Cook suggests that in a society where the rich enslave the poor all the time, not by taking away their freedom, but by exploiting their work, even if freely given, slavery might be the better of the two options. An individual will likely be better off if he is the property of his owner rather than a mere employee, since it is then in the master's best interest to look after him. Again, though, we might question, would it not pay instead to simply enact laws to ensure proper treatment of free workers? Just as Torah tries to make slavery more humane, it could have instead regulated worker-employee relations, ensuring that there is no exploitation. This leads us to one last approach taken by the 19th century Italian commentator, the Hoel Moshe. He writes, Had the generation been worthy, the Torah would have prohibited the buying of slaves altogether. According to him then, the Torah does not always represent an ideal. Some of its laws are instituted with the needs and nature of the nation in mind, providing not the highest moral standard, but a required minimum, recognizing that people might not yet have been ready for more. Rav Rabinovich, the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Berkat Moshe, has more recently elaborated on this idea. He points out that this would not be the only case in which Tanakh speaks to the reality of human nature and circumstances rather than to the ideal. We see this idea also in the laws of war, divorce, and polygamy. In contrast to the Nitziv, he emphasizes how it is not obligatory to buy a slave, because this is not a desired action. Yet, the Torah was given in a world in which slavery was a normative institution, and remained so for almost 2,000 years. At that point in history, it would have been nearly impossible for Israel to renounce slavery completely. As such, Hashem decided to regulate and improve the existing institution, and perhaps in so doing, to help humanity grow out of it altogether. In Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's words, the, talent, the challenge to which Torah legislation was trying to respond is, how can one create a social structure in which of their own accord, people will eventually come to see slavery as wrong and freely choose to abandon it? In Yerta Hashem, next week we'll move into the last parasha of Sefer Vayikra, 
پرشت به خوکو تایید.